0: hello lovely people and how are you today i do hope you're doing okay now something a little different this week our first no music episode the idea being our next chapter isn't always one we ask for in fact it could be our absolute worst most dreadful nightmare but that's the thing isn't it about this funny old life it's not always about happy music and we don't always get what we want but this podcast is also all about inspiration. And I have never, ever met anyone like Heidi Lochlin. I have worked in television mainly as a journalist for 25 years now. I'm often asked who is the best person you've ever interviewed. And since I've met her, I always reply Heidi Lochlin. Heidi had, shall we say, an eventful beginning in life, but she used her challenges to help others when she worked for the Metropolitan Police. She helped reform young criminals, face gangs, took on riots. Heidi wasn't scared of anything. Heidi was just about to start her next chapter of her own choice when life gave her and her family something it's hard to imagine. Pregnant with her third child, Heidi was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. She had to make her decision, her life or her babies. I'll let Heidi tell you this all in her own words, but the outcome took her, in her words, to the depths of hell. Her story was so moving, and she showed such a ridiculous amount of courage, she was on the national news, where we all heard about her story first. But if you think you're about to listen to a morose and frankly depressing conversation, well, do you know what? You're not. Yes, there are tough moments, I warn you, and there are tears. But there is also much laughter, fun, lots And lots of swearing, you've got that little warning too, but even better, bucketfuls and bucketfuls of hope and inspiration. If there is something stopping you from starting your next chapter, then I hope by the end of this conversation, Heidi's words will have helped even just a little. Since I first met her, when I face a tough time, I always still think, what would Heidi do? And I hope after this, you will think the same. So here she is, the incredible Heidi Lachlan. Heidi Lachlan, welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. I am so, so thrilled to have you with me.
1: Oh, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Wow, brilliant. I'm going to just get on here, Heidi, because we have lots to discuss. So, as you know, I structure this like a book. So I'm going to start with your prologue. And when I asked you about some of your background, because I've interviewed you a couple of times before, I didn't quite understand the background that you had. It was quite, shall we say, i would to say eventful, the beginnings. It was quite eventful. So you were born in Chorley in Lancashire, like you say, Phoenix Knights. Yeah. So you started off there. You've got an older brother. Yeah. And then you moved to Cornwall. Uh,
1: Yeah, random, I know. Um, My dad was a... Like a stonemason and a really good one and his work was required down in gunners lake in cornwall and we bought a piece of land there um whilst he was working with the idea of uh building our own home i say me i say we i was like one so i didn't help at all (laughs) but um we lived in a caravan on this site it was two caravans welded together um and basically the house took forever so the whole time i lived in cornwall which was about four and a half years ended up most of that being in a caravan so uh, it was a it was an interesting start to life really and did you enjoy that did you enjoy living in a caravan what
0: you can remember of it
1: well i think because i had no frame of reference really to anything else to me that was completely normal i remember it being a bit cold um and my mum used to, my mum was one of them that knitted everything, so we always wore these massively knitted outfits all the time, and um, that's sort of my standout memories of being in the caravan, but it was, um, we had the river Tamar running through the back of the plot, basically, and I used to go down to this, this river, my dad always used to tell me that it was full of sharks and crocodiles, obviously, to stop me from like falling in and, and stuff like that, And I remember I'd been down there once and I'd found this rotten cabbage on the bank and I dragged it up proudly to my mum and said, look, I've got something for dinner. And I remember her saying, oh, that's really helpful, Heidi. Thank you very much. And probably, obviously, then lobbing this slimy green thing in the bin. But I, my memories of Cornwall uh, are amazing. Like I, I really liked it down there. Um, it was lovely. But after four and a half, five years, we then moved, we had to move, my mum and dad broke up, my dad um, was a drunk, I suppose, and uh, and my mum had had enough, and so we moved to Porter's Head um, and moved in with my mum's brother, um, because we had nowhere to live, and eventually got put into like, um, like a halfway house, I suppose you'd mm. say, like a, a flat where they put people that are waiting for social housing. So we lived in that for a while. And I used to, I remember that we had like, it was like two bedsits and we got two because we were a, a, a mum and, and two young children. And, uh, Oh, I used to, uh, was too frightened at night to go out to use the toilet because it was in a separate part of, of the uh, of the building. So I used to piss in the sinks in the, uh, oh, <laughs> what was the oh, kitchen. Oh, the bed- Heidi. I know, it was disgusting, but it was brilliant as well because then you never had to leave your own room. So that was my first experience of an en suite, really.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I do. I think that was very imaginative then. Look at that. You were
1: I think so, using space. nearly like five year old. Yeah. That is really imaginative. I used to have to drag my Sylvanian family house over to the sink, <laughs> climb onto the roof of this house and then jump up with my pyjama bottoms around my ankles and plop my ass into the sink and, and pee because I was just far too frightened to go out. Because you had to go down some steps... Out of the flat and down some steps up into what effectively was a toilet accessible by lots of other people that lived in in this building, which is grim, really, when you think about it. I was too scared. My brother was too scared. He wouldn't take me either. So, we, yeah, then we used to just, yeah,
0: pee into the... Uh, but it was bijou living, in a way, Heidi. I and mean, you can imagine that some estate agent in London with one of those tiny, grotty flats could listen to this yeah. and say, look, I could learn a bit from Heidi there. So, so yeah, but that... I mean, joking aside... That that was sort of quite a. All it must have been quite a traumatic, um, in some ways, like, in in many ways, because and then also just on the side that when I asked you this, I I couldn't help but smile at this Heidi because I, I when you said this when I asked you what um, kind of pupil you were at school, your actual words were a little shit, apologies <laughs> yeah, for yeah. But um, so you so presumably then you moved, so you were going to school then in Porter's Head. Yeah, you said you were yeah. always in trouble.
1: Always in trouble. I mean. I was the class clown, so, and if anyone dared me to do something, I had to do it, I couldn't help myself. So, yeah, I was um, I was really, really naughty, and it got worse in secondary school. So, I went to Head Primary initially, and um, when it was in Slade Road in Head and, uh, yeah, I was just really naughty, I was really gobby, um, surprising to the people that are listening to this now. Um, yeah, very gobby. I didn't like to be told... Um, And I think probably, obviously, everything that happened before just I felt uneasy always in my surroundings, moved around quite a lot. So you didn't really trust people. So then I was just rude. Um, So I was always in the headmaster's office. Um, I was just I was very lippy. I was very quick witted as well. And I just couldn't help it. It was kind of like it'd be out of my mouth before I'd even think about what I was saying. And then I'd find myself stood in the headmaster's office next to the radiator boiling to death. Um, And you forged your mum's signature for detentions. Uh, Yeah, so that was in secondary school. So I I was constantly on detention every single day for one thing or another. Um, It's not something to be proud of, boys and girls, but yes, I was every single day for something. And then not only would I be in trouble at school, I'd then have to come home and face my mum, who would then be absolutely livid with me. And, you know... um, she was quite strict so she'd be very shouty and we'd get in a lot of trouble and the wooden spoon had come out and a crack across the knuckles and i hated all that kind of stuff obviously so then i thought well the only way she knows about all of this is because she's at work all the time they send letters home so why don't i just forge her signature and then none of this and yeah we all lived happily ever after she was oblivious And my teachers were oblivious and I didn't get in, get the wooden spoon anymore. So I was quite happy with that. Well,
0: I can can imagine, Heidi, because I met your mum when I came to interview you before. And like, so now you tell me this, I couldn't, because you clearly are from like a very close, lovely, lovely, loving family. So I can't, this comes as such a surprise to me. (laughs) (laughs) I can't imagine your mum with her wooden spoon out, but... At least, yeah. you, at least you, came up with a very good solution for it all. So you were told, you were told when you grew up you would have three illegitimate children and live on a council estate. Now there's nothing wrong with living on a council estate, but I think that was pretty harsh to say that you're going to have three illegitimate children.
1: Yeah, I think it was because I was probably following in the footsteps of what a teacher might believe ended up in that lifestyle. And I grew up in a council estate, so A, I didn't see that as an offence at all. Um, I thought, well, yeah, I live in a council estate already, so what's your problem, yeah, you snob? Right. Yeah, quite and right. Then, um, I didn't know what illegitimate meant so that was irrelevant to me but I thought three kids not a chance I'm not being tied down with with three (laughs) children which is ironically what I did go on to have Um, but um, I knew it was was extremely rude but I just didn't really comprehend what it meant at the time and I look back now and I think my god what a horrible thing to say to somebody but actually for me so this is why when I look back and and everyone asks me now the situation with what's happened to me in the last five years how are you as strong as you are well clearly those building blocks were being were in place from the very beginning so so when that teacher said that to me and I knew it was it was very offensive that is what that's what energized me to be anything but anything but what they told me I was going to be which was then made me determined to be successful in my own right, because everyone's definition of success is extremely different. And it doesn't to me translate to having loads of money or a massive house or anything. It's about how happy you are generally. Um, So I was determined to be a success and So in a lot of ways, I'm extremely grateful to that person for saying that to me. So, Mm. yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, so that takes us nicely on to your first chapter. So uh, the lovely listeners may not, I don't think they'll be surprised to know what your first chapter was then when you think about it. Because you ended up, you worked for the Metropolitan Police in Camden. Yes. You spent five years on the response team and then you moved into the gangs unit. So you basically fought gangs
1: yeah i guess there was there's an element of so the team that i was on there was an element of um of fighting gangs we would say is in dealing with the gang problem uh in camden um which was enforcement so going into people's homes very early in the morning to do arrest warrants and things like that but also we would do a lot of profile building on these individuals and another part of what my really small team would do, was engagement, which was trying to steer people away from gangs and trying to look at ones that we thought we could put energy into that were probably on the periphery, that we could then try to put into meaningful engagement. So I would go and I would drag these teenagers out of their beds and take them to job interviews and say, this is what you need to do. Do you want to be this person? Do you want to be in a gang? And do you want to end up stabbed or in prison? Or do you want to actually have Um, something that you can be really proud of and you know have a a life where you're going to be left alone to have your freedom so there was quite a lot of strands to being on the gangs unit it wasn't all just um turning out people's pockets and nicking them for carrying weapons or putting people in prison and, and all that there was a lot of other stuff to it too i enjoyed all elements of it um, but it was tough it was very tough and it was really hard actually you could build a rapport you'd see some of these kids from leaving primary school so we used to go in and talk to them about like uh, joint enterprise within like crime and stuff like that you start to build up a bit of a rapport and and then, unfortunately, one of them would then get stabbed and they would die. And then, and, and that's quite hard. And people don't see that side of the police. They just think police, all oh, just all they do is drag people and put them into prison. But actually, it's not like that at all. Um, there's a lot more that goes on that people just... It's not newsworthy, I guess, so people don't talk about it. But there's an awful lot that the police do that is to try and steer people away from committing crime because they don't want criminals. That's the main thing. We want people to... Everybody to just get on and, you know, all leave each other alone everyone to just be happy. Obviously, that's the ultimate goal. But um, so there were lots of elements that I, I found really difficult within that. Um, and part of my job when I worked on the gangs unit was also uh, in public order. So I did like probably sort of 50 to 60 percent of my job actually was public order or public disorder is probably more easy to explain which was the police that you see in big, massive baby grows, flameproof overalls at the riots, carrying shields. That was the main role that I did, and that was all over London. So I was one of the first officers um on scene during the London riots and was petrol bombed and and all sorts of things like that so it was a very colourful career and I absolutely loved
0: it I loved my job can I just ask Heidi I'm going to talk to you more about that in just a second how did you get then from Portishead to that you know how did you actually even join the police
1: so in I'll try and make I'll try and keep it to a bit shorter because I know I'm a waffler but um I I decided I'd wanted to go into the army. That was what I was going to do when I was growing up. I wanted to be an army officer. So I was told to go off to... I did a flying scholarship with the Royal Air Force when I was 17 and learned to fly Cessnas very, very poorly, I might add, um, and probably realised that as I if I kicked the arse out of it, I probably could have been a pilot, but I think I would have been borderline dangerous and uh, decided that the oh, army Christ. might be a little... A better fit for me um, so I wanted to go, to but I wanted to be an officer so I was told to go and get a degree or go and do some meaningful charity work abroad for a year before they would take me so I decided to go to uni I studied drama because it would be easy and it wasn't it was a nightmare um, But while I was there, I did what they call the OTC, the Officer Training Corps, which is basically like a very squished down, easier version of Sandhurst Training Academy, um, where you basically run around every weekend with a rifle, learning all tactics, learning how to be a a commander, um, and also lots of other things that you do during that. But what struck me when I was doing it, as much as I loved it, was that I was cold. All the time, freezing cold. All the training we did was on the Brecon Beacons, and you'd be getting up in the morning, get dusting snow off of your sleeping bag. And I thought, no, no, I can't do this for a job. This is ridiculous. So a halfway, good halfway house between military and civilian life was the police force, because you still get to go home at the end of the day and sleep in your own bed, and you don't have to iron your sheets on and that kind of thing. So, but if I was going to join the police, I wanted to go into the best police force in the world and allegedly that was the Metropolitan Police best they're supposed to have the best training they're supposed to be the best police force in the world and I'm not saying they're not I'm not saying one way or the other but I, I, I don't I'm not quite sure of that that stamp um but that was what I was going to do and um I'd always wanted to live in London anyway so I joined the Metropolitan Police and I got in and I had to wait for probably about a year before I got a start date um, did you have any qualifications? Did you pass your GCSEs? Yeah, so I got good GCSEs, good yeah. A levels, a degree. Wow! Um, yeah, so I, I got all of that stuff, and um, so I got a a two one at uni in drama. Where did uh, you go to uni? Aberystwyth. Wow. So, okay. God. Yeah. Okay. Or right. well, Aberystwyth, as everyone called it, because it was really boring. <laughs>
0: I'm uh, sure you livened it up, Heidi.
1: Yeah, I certainly did. There was more pubs per square mile than anywhere else in the UK, apparently. I remember that fact. Um, a <laughs> good it fact. It was great. And uh, so I joined the Metropolitan Police and then, yeah, so I went from Said to London and then when I decided after the London riots to have uh, kids is when I started laying the foundations for moving back to Bristol, because this is where all my family were, and I needed the free childcare, obviously, and and I was enrolled to do a master's at UE, um, which never happened because other things intervened, basically.
0: Yes, so we'll we'll move on to that. But So just going back there, because I'm going all over the place, but when you were standing, I mean, just the idea of that, Heidi, you know, but there you were, you're a very uh, lovely lady. You're not a big... um, beefy like you know there you were standing she's she's I I, god I sound a bit like I've got a girl crush but she's very pretty she's very pretty (laughs) thank you and um, oh I'm blushing now um but basically (laughs) you're not sort of a big burly person so there you were standing there and you know like you were saying and you're facing in in riots and I remember you telling me about that you were on the trains looking at the for the for the people with the knives and the gangs there did you Did you ever get scared? I know you said to me that you really love adrenaline, but did you ever get scared in those moments?
1: I was never scared during the riots or in anything large-scale public disorder because I always had all my... I say colleagues, they're your mates, they're your mates. You spend your most amount of time with these people. And I had them all right beside me. you know, some other females, mostly all guys, um, but people that I absolutely 100% trusted to have my back at all times and they always did. Um, so I never felt scared in those incidents, but it was more the normal policing that had had its scarier elements, like going into addresses and there'd just be a couple of you and then finding people in there and, like, really intimidating. And I had, know, I mean, I've had fights with full-grown men, um and there are times when you suddenly think oh god you know I'm a bit out of my depth here and you press your emergency button and you're just waiting for somebody to come and, and help you um or probably times um that it, it was absolutely terrifying um but there wasn't there's not really a standout a standout moment the problem I screamed once um which was um <laughs> because I didn't know this but I didn't know when I signed up to police what I was joining. In all honesty, um, you have to go and look deal with dead bodies quite often. I'm not squeamish, and in, in a weird way, I, I, I'm I quite liked stuff like that. So I was kind of the death person on our team, and I recall going to a, a scene once where. You know, it was a a poor man, a poor old man had died. Uh, well, he was off off radar, so someone called in saying he hadn't turned up at an airport where he was supposed to be. Could we go and check on him? And we'd managed to get the door open, and none of the electric was working because he hadn't fed the meter with any coins. And so I had to get a torch out and go and look in this dark flat for something i didn't know was going to be there and i remember scanning over this room and i was just with this other girl called sarah who was new and she's even daintier and smaller than me and it was just us two and i remember scan i scanned this room and um i suddenly saw i mean it's a shame you can't see my face but it was like this that's a, a, that's a scary face a very scary face like the screen mask the hands went up in the air but this blessing this poor guy died sat up in bed it was like something out of a horror movie and i remember just we both dropped our torches and screamed and went running out of this flat which is really unprofessional but that's the only time i've probably like been completely caught off guard but i wasn't worried for my safety it was just a horrible moment yeah um horrible yeah the adrenaline always kept me going I love the adrenaline side of it so I never felt frightened I but I had never had anybody threaten me with a knife or anything the the worst things were like I say were fights with people that I knew I was never going to win and you just have to take the punches and just hope that eventually somebody will will get there and they always do because in the Met the good thing about the Met is there was always a million police officers within a stone's throw of you so it's quite safe in that respect
0: yeah I mean and work it must have been lovely to work in such a big team and again like what you touched on earlier all what you'd been through growing up especially when you were dealing with those teenagers or that you really that must have made such a difference if you had come from a very cozy upbringing then you probably wouldn't have had the insight to be able to get through to them as much as you as I'm sure you did
1: yeah I do think that helped I mean the, the thing that went against me probably was that I was a fairly well-spoken person from outside of London, and that that kind of went against me a little bit. But as soon as someone would get talking to me, and they'd say, "You don't know what it's like," and I'd be like, "Actually, do know what it's like." I lived in home homeless shelter for for six months. Then I lived in social housing in, in like for years and years, and that's where I spent my whole life. I lived in a caravan. I know. I haven't been born with a silver spoon in my mouth. And I think because and also with these with these kids, I'll call them kids. They're not really kids, but I would never talk down to them because it never gets you anywhere. And also I never wanted any teacher to speak to me like that. And people see authority as authority. So I think because I've just talked to them like I would talk to anybody else, I always had a reasonable rapport with them and that makes things a bit easier um, to, deal, to deal with. You can't get through to everybody, though, don't get me wrong. There's some I said a lost cause, really, which is an awful thing to say, but there are some people that you think are just too far gone to be reached, and that's really sad as well, having to make those decisions about where you're putting your energy. Um, but I like to think we we did do a lot of good, but obviously, and un- all of that goes unreported and unnoticed, unfortunately. But it happens every day in the police force. Mm, no, you're right. That, well,
0: that's a whole other different podcast, I think. Oh, mm. right. So, had yeah. you? I know your husband's in the police. Did you meet him by then? Had you met? Yeah. So
1: it's frowned upon, Ellie. But he was Is like it? an instructor.
0: <laughs> well, I don't. I mean, I must say, I don't approve of people who marry the people they work with. I mean, <laughs> yes, that's that's. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty pushing the, uh, the boundaries, I'd say, in the office politics. Anyway, but yeah, so, yeah, so you'd met him. And so we are going to move now onto your next chapter. So you you had two gorgeous, lovely boys. Yes. Okay. And you were still, you'd moved out, weren't you? hadn't you moved out by this stage? You were
1: living more kind of Readingy way. So we moved to, yes, you're quite right. Um, I had both the boys at the Royal Berkshire Hospital in Reading and um, as soon as the second one was born, which is Tate, um, that was when I really started looking for the move back to Bristol because I knew that there was no way in hell that my husband and I, uh, who wasn't my husband at the time actually, um, there's no way that we were both going to be able to stay in the police force and both be able to have kids and and, all, and his family were all in Liverpool, mine were all in Bristol So we knew that once the second one came along, we had to start looking for the move back. So that's what we started doing, yeah. And were you still in the police at this stage? Yeah, so I was on maternity leave after having Tate, and then I'd backed a career break onto the end of that five-year career break, um, in which time I was going to decide what I was going to do the rest of my life. Um, But I'd obviously got enrolled for this course at UE in Bristol, um, studying real estate development. Um, Okay, something completely different. Completely different, yeah, completely different. Something I was really interested in. I mean, we'd bought and sold a few properties whilst in the police that we'd renovated and sold on, and it was quite easy money, and I was really interested in it. And I thought maybe, you know, that's something I'm interested in, maybe that's something I could could build on. I didn't think for a second I'd get onto the course, but I did, and then I thought, oh, that would be amazing. And that was the plan. For September 2015 when Tate would have been turning one and we would re- we had relocated then back to Porter's Head in that time
0: okay but in that time so then you started to notice there was something not
1: right yeah so in the January of that year when we first started talking about the move. I was breastfeeding Tate one night and I noticed that I had a real annoying itch on my boob on the right and um, it carried on for a few weeks and I just thought it was mastitis because I was breastfeeding and it was an itchy rash and uh, but I didn't have any of the other symptoms so it wasn't painful um, or anything, I didn't have fever symptoms which is all my mates that had had mastitis, had had that so I thought well this is weird. That I don't have these other symptoms, and I thought maybe I've just got a really high pain threshold, so it's just not getting to me. But after a while, I thought I probably should um, at least go and get this rash cleared up because rash was uh, sort of growing and spreading a bit, and I thought maybe I'm allergic to something I don't know. So in while I was in Red, still in Reading, I went along to my GP. um, It said I had this rash, and uh, but you know, and obviously I was still breastfeeding, so without even looking, the guy diagnosed me as having mastitis. And and I just said, well, look, you know, it's been about three or four weeks and it hasn't cleared and the rash, if you feed through mastitis, is meant to go away on its own. And he was just really uninterested and really unhelpful. And I eventually ma- I managed to persuade him to look at my boobs, which should not be that difficult. Um, a man should want to look at a lovely woman's well, breasts. Exactly. <laughs> In an unprofessional manner, but no, even in the, you know, in the professional sense, he he didn't want to look. He diagnosed me without looking. I insisted that he had a look. He had a look. He told me it was mastitis, and if it wasn't that, it was something called folliculitis, uh, which is like infected hair follicles or something. And that the treatment was the same, which is a course of antibiotics. But if I wasn't experiencing in any experiencing pain, it wasn't necessary for me to take them because obviously we don't want to take antibiotics unnecessarily. So I declined them, but then I went away and I just, I was so annoyed with how rude this guy had been um, that I thought I was going to go, I'll go for a second opinion, which is something I've never done in my entire life. I really put trust in all professionals around me um, and I went back. Probably then, about three another three weeks later, so probably knocking on the door of about March time now, um, something like that, and said, This is what's happened. I've still got this rash, actually, it's spread. My boob has got a bit bigger where it's in- it looks like it's infected, it's quite hot. She said, Well, yes, that does sound like mastitis, but let's have a proper look. And she looked around everything, she said, I'm going to give you a full breast examination just to reassure you. There was no lumps. There was nothing like that. She went through my family medical history about, um, you know, has anyone in my family ever had cancer or anything like that? No, no. And I'm a massive family because I come from an Irish family. I've got like 29 cousins or something. And so there's no one had had cancer. They have had now, um, but not at that time. So um, it was unusual. There was like, there was nothing wrong with me other than I could have mastitis. So she said, look, let's try these antibiotics and then we'll know then because if if it doesn't clear up then it's got to be something else and we'll have to look further into it but it's nothing to worry about I believe it is mastitis um come back if there's any problem so I was happy with that and I went away and but I was due to go that weekend with my mates on a drinking weekend first weekend away without the baby and I thought oh, I won't take them I'll take them when I get back so I delayed it a week went on this weekend away then when I came back I kind of took them in a half-assed sort of manner I was meant to take three a day on an empty stomach well I eat all the time so that's nigh on impossible for me anyway and um I so I took them in a half-assed manner so when the rash didn't clear up I was not surprised whatsoever because I thought well I haven't I haven't been a good girl I haven't taken them properly so and then our move date came through to relocate back to Porter's Head. And then as soon as we moved in, I was due to go to, to visit my auntie who lives in Spain. So I went on and, all, and did all of that without going back to the doctor. Um And while I was in Spain, I felt really, really poorly, really poorly, being sick. Um, My breast had probably swelled quite significantly by this point. It was bright red. It looked like a car crash, as my husband kept telling me. And uh, it was just, I knew something wasn't right, but I just didn't know what it was. And I thought, well, it's got to be because I haven't taken these antibiotics properly. So when I came, came back... Oh, well, just before I came back, my mum said to me, oh, I think you're pregnant again, look at you being sick. And I thought, there's no way, because it would be borderline immaculate conception when I've got two really small children. I don't have time for that kind of shenanigans. Absolutely. No, so I thought, there's no way I'm pregnant again. Like, I couldn't even remember, like, the last time that could have even been an absolute possibility. So, um, but maybe there was, like, a one time or something. I don't know. So I came back. I booked another doctor's appointment, now in Porter's Head, but obviously because I was a new person, new resident, I had to fill in all these forms that took a week to activate, so things got slowed down a little bit, and in the meantime, I thought, well, I'll go and take a pregnancy test to rule it out, because that's the first thing they're going to ask me when they see I've got a rash on my boob and all this, because hormones and everything, so... And and behold, I was pregnant for the third time The Immaculate Conception Immaculate Conception um, uh, But I had no idea how pregnant I was Because I couldn't remember when I'd managed <laughs> to make this baby um, So, yeah, it was a real shock But uh, very exciting So I was straight onto the university to say that I'd have to defer my Masters for another year Because I was pregnant And um, I was really excited and then I so I went to the doctor and I said oh you know I'm pregnant I'm breastfeeding I've got a rash it hasn't cleared up on antibiotics but um you know I didn't take them properly she said well let's have a look and she took one look at me and she went that is not mastitis you need to go to a breast clinic I'm sending you for an urgent referral so I was like oh god I must have a really bad infection um And there were no lumps, that's why I need to bang that fact home, there were no lumps whatsoever, just a rash, and a swelled up boob, and I guess at this point my nipple started to invert a little bit, and it had like orange peel skin, which is exactly how it sounds, dimply skin, Uh, and I went for the breast appointment, and they were very jovial, and I walked in, oh, you know, we're here, you're pregnant, you're breastfeeding, you got a bit of a rash, I'm sure it's nothing, let's have a look took one look, everything changed, the atmosphere was really dark, it was like, how many weeks pregnant are you, rather than, oh, how many weeks pregnant are you, so that's when I kind of thought, well, this is a bit weird, they all seem really doom and gloom, it's only a rash, like, calm down, everybody um and they took a biopsy of my skin so they did like an ultrasound of the of the boob um and found some areas of interest I think they called it or something well they then took a biopsy and told me to come back in a week's time for the results which I did the day after Tate's first birthday and about five days after my first scan to find out that I was actually I was um, yeah about 11 weeks 12 weeks pregnant so (laughs) um so I went back for the results. Um, i had done a bit of googling, so I kind of had a bit of an idea what to expect. Um, I'd scrolled, I'd put all my symptoms into Google, and I, I scrolled past every site that didn't—I didn't like the sound of—and looked for a diagnosis that I was happy with that made me feel good. And I couldn't, couldn't really find one, so then I did go back to I think Cancer Research UK or something, Macmillan or something like that, and. I, and it was like, breast cancer has lumps. Yeah, great. That's not me. I don't have any of those. I know that. I uh, kept scrolling down and I found a subheading called inflammatory breast cancer, um, which underneath said extremely aggressive, but very, very rare. Um, it's like 1% of breast cancers are inflammatory. So, I mean, basically nothing. Um, it's extremely aggressive, like I say, um, with a prognosis of two to five years on diagnosis because um of how aggressive it is it's always a minimum of stage three when it presents um because it's diffusive so it's just it was like wildfire basically and uh um and underneath that had a list of what the symptoms were and it said um large rash can appear like mastitis itchy inverted nipple orange pill skin large swelling can feel hot to the touch i'm like oh my god i tick every bloody one of those boxes um and it's a generally it's found in afro-caribbean women between the ages of 55 and 70 well i'm not i'm not one of those no so i thought well that that worked possibly in my favor in terms of diagnosis um and So when I went for the results and they ushered us into this lovely room with cushions everywhere, which we always know is the bad news room because they don't sit you on a shitty NHS plastic chair to tell you that, unfortunately, you have inflammatory breast cancer. And you also have an extra hormone called HER2, which promotes the growth of cancer cells, which you need a separate treatment for, but to enable you to have that, you cannot be pregnant. So I've gone into this yeah it was rough because I'd gone into this room um, as a mum of three children. Yes, one hadn't been born yet but that was no different for me. and then to find out like your whole life of what you knew until that second is now con- is changed completely forever. You're never gonna be who you were five minutes ago ever again. You're gonna live or die with this diagnosis and you're going to have to terminate a baby that that you really want to enable to allow yourself to possibly be here for your other two children so were you with your husband was your husband there with you he was there yeah um yeah and he's an uh, on the surface an unemotional hairy ass scouser so (laughs) he had tears in his eyes, which I'd never seen in all the time we'd been together, which was a long time, um, 10 years or so. And that was hard for me to see because you just, we've always been very controlled people and all your control is completely taken away from you when you're diagnosed with something like that, but also told that, you know, you're not only that, you're going to, you know, you need an abortion. Well, they said to me, somebody in my position would strongly consider one. They couldn't obviously make you do it, but I couldn't have treatment without it. And I'd had this cancer for nine months already. And I think I recall reading somewhere that inflammatory breast cancer can double in size in 72 hours. So to have gone untreated that much was savage, and also at that point we didn't know how far this cancer had spread because I needed MRI scans and all this other shit to determine how, determine how bad the, this cancer really was, but you could see it was bad from just looking. it was chronic. Um, I felt well everywhere else. I didn't feel ill. Mm. I felt pregnant. I just mm. didn't feel ill. Um, but it was a sh- yeah, a real shock, but. Within about two minutes, the the rational side of me kicked back in because the woman, the breast nurse, said to me, you know, you can have this room to cry, express yourselves, wail, do what you feel is necessary. I mean, I am not that person. You're not a wailer. I'm not a wailer. I'd gone for a wee, and I remember looking at this yellow hazardous waste bin in the toilet, and it said... You know, this is for people that it basically something along the lines that these people put their tissue in here that are like hazardous people, people on chemo and that kind of thing. I thought shit me I'm a yellow bin user from now on. And I just came back out of the toilet and just said, Right, let's get back in this room. I don't need half an hour. What's the plan? What are my options? And they said, you know, we need to get you on chemo as soon as possible, but obviously you're pregnant and uh, I don't know what we're going to do, but we could give you a lesser treatment that we don't think will work, but it might slow the growth down a little bit. Um, and you could look at that option. And 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 it's we think it's pretty much almost deemed safe in pregnancy. And it, and it was actually after I'd started it deemed safe in pregnancy. So I said, that's what I'd like to do. So I will give the baby... The best shot that I can and try and come up with the perfect ideal where we all get out of this alive really and it was really hard because I knew that I was risking my life and I had two boys at home I didn't give a shit about me Ellie I wasn't no, worried no, about didn't. poor me I need my life for me it was I needed my life for my kids mm. they need their mum that was it and so I was trying to marry up for the three of them it is an impossible situation really and it's brave the decision either way and I've known people that have had to make both these decisions and it's shit Mm -hmm. um but I knew I I couldn't do I'd already bonded like as I just couldn't have the abortion I just couldn't do I wasn't brave enough um so you know I I was in love I couldn't Mm -hmm. put me before the bed and and that was the thing and then for some people saying yeah but you've got to put the boys before the baby i'm like i can't but i can't differentiate between the three of them i can't just because the other one's not born yet doesn't mean i love it and love it any less Mm. how can i choose Mm, how
0: can can you so the mother you know a mother cannot do that you know and a mother like you and i i know you and i you know the kind of mother you are so how long did it go on for you were allowed basically they kept you pregnant as long as they could And then you basically had to have your daughter early, didn't you?
1: Yeah, so the plan was, So once I came out of that appointment, we got oncolo- uh, not oncologist, we had neonatologists and everything put into our team and everyone was discussing what we were going to do and all this. It an unusual situation. I think they'd seen it once before in Bristol or something. Um, and they said, right, okay, well, look, we're going to deliver the baby at 30 weeks. baby at 30 weeks has almost the same survival rates as a baby born at full term. So that'll be great. The baby will stay in NICU for... 10 weeks and and then you'll go on to this this treatment that you really need and you hopefully if you're stage three then you will have the treatment for the same amount of time and then everyone will live happily ever after so that was the plan so they didn't know what stage you were at this stage no the tricky thing was I could have an MRI scan but you couldn't have dye contrast in pregnancy so they could rule out most of the organs the only thing they couldn't rule out with the lungs because they can't see them without the dye contrast properly is my understanding of it so we just went with that um unfortunately it turned out the cancer was in my lungs which is bloody typical so I was actually stage four but whether that happened was already there or whether that happened during the the rest of the first part of the treatment I, I don't know and we'll never know um but it was you know I was a risk I was willing to take and I was aware of it and I wouldn't have done anything differently anyway so it, it, it was fine um so but as this treatment the treatment that I had that was like not really the one I needed it didn't work obviously um boob got bigger um so they, we, ha- we got to a point where we were like, right, we're going to have to change tack here a little bit because the chance of you surviving this now are getting extremely small. But the baby surviving is getting higher and higher by the week. So we're going to deliver at 28 weeks now, two weeks earlier, which I believe is the earliest they'll deliver a premature baby planned. But for, for you know, because babies born before that is usually spontaneous labor. So they wouldn't plan to bring a baby into the world before 28 weeks. Um, So that was a plan, 28 weeks plus one day. And, you know, I was really excited. Mm. Um, Obviously, I was worried because that's quite young. It's three months early. Um, But one of my best friends had had a baby spontaneously at 30 weeks, and he was fine. So I knew what the NICU journey, I suppose, would look like. So I felt like I was well equipped to deal with that and I had to I couldn't keep going on and on and on and on knowing that the odds were 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 really good for what was a little girl she was a little girl we found out what was for her um we're getting great and mine were looking really shit to the point that I probably would give birth and not be there at all very long for her so It was looking for this perfect cross-section on a grid of my survival going down and hers going up and looking for the points crossover to deliver her. So 28 weeks. And meanwhile, you still had two little boys you were looking after. Oh, my goodness. I had two little boys at home, one and two years old, whilst being pregnant, also having chemotherapy and all the side effects that come with that. And a husband that was working in London all week, um, and it was it was hard, it was hard, it was very, very hard, Um, but it was a distraction, like, uh, you know, it was a distraction, and uh, I think that's probably why cancer for me was quite easy in that beginning point, because I had the baby to think about, Um, so then, yeah, so we went in and had little our little girl at 28 weeks she was born on the 11th of December 2015 and she was born in Southmead and she was super super healthy um textbook NICU baby and I stayed they let they said oh you can stay up here for as long as you want you know we know your situation so and I had to have a certain amount of time between having the operation and having the chemotherapy for infection reasons and stuff like that so I had like a a couple of weeks over christmas to recover that was the plan uh, before starting this really horrendous chemotherapy um so after the, i stayed up there with her for five days and on the fifth night i thought right i'm gonna go home because it's just before christmas i'm gonna see the boys because I haven't seen them yet well actually that's not true because noah had come into hospital actually to see ali yeah so she's and say she she was called ali Ali Louise yeah and um so Noah our eldest who was two had come in to see her in a little incubator in Mm -hmm. Southmead and he kept saying because she had all wires all over her oh mummy, there's spiders all over her can you take Mm. them out take them out And, (laughs) and it was really sweet and we've got some lovely video footage of him singing to her and stuff when she was in NICU um but, yeah, I needed to see Tate and I needed to make sure the house was in order for Christmas. And obviously, because i have been away for five days, and you know, you don't trust everybody to do anything okay. wrong. You're absent. And yet, you still want to do a perfect Christmas. Mad, it's madness, really. It's for the kids, isn't it? You just think you want everything to be great for them and they always have these amazing memories of everything about their childhood. And I think a lot of, because I had some not so great memories of my childhood potentially, that um, I never wanted the kids to have n- anything but happy memories which is fucking ridiculous really because everybody has shit things happen to them at some point um and we're not perfect so why we try to be i don't know oh you've um, got my language <laughs> and i um so we came home on night five and we had a little glass of prosecco to wet the baby's head and that and then went to bed and i was there's this picture of me on the couch downstairs bold as a coot from all the chemo fat from the pregnancy but with the biggest smile of any mother you've ever seen on my face it was unreal with a massive bottle of prosecco hanging out my hand very good and uh i guess that's the last photo anyone would ever see of me where everything would all feel like it was brilliant because the next morning we woke up to a call from the registrar at south me to say that unfortunately Ali had had a bleed to her brain and could we come in quickly to to see her and comfort her um and I didn't initially panic I was upset because I didn't want her to be anything but perfect uh, her her experience to be anything but perfect and things to be easy for her so I was upset but I knew that premature babies do have bleeds on their brains quite often and actually it's quite normal so I was trying to be rational and not panic and and then when we got into hospital, we could tell by the atmosphere in NICU that actually things were an awful, awful lot worse than, than what we'd thought and uh, no one could make eye contact with me. Um, so we went in and our neonatologist came over and said to us that unfortunately the bleeds uh, had been to both sides of her brain and uh, the damage was extensive and that... Um, they were going to do a few more tests, but their their belief was that unfortunately she would not recover from that Um, ID. So it was, it was really hard. Yeah, very difficult. My immediate feelings were that it was my fault because I'd let her down and I shouldn't have had her so early and that I was selfish to have her to enable me to have treatment. I mean, it didn't matter what I, what would happen to me as long as she was okay. Um, so I felt terribly guilty. Um, and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do anything but watch and hope that they were wrong or, you know, something could be different. And obviously, I guess, like, the stupid part of me that um, romantically thought that because of the struggles that we'd been through to get her here that there was no way that she wasn't going to be fine. And uh, so I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. Mm. felt like a terrible, terrible nightmare. Um, Unfortunately, Mm. it was reality.
0: Mm. Um, Heidi, I'm so sorry to make you, because we have spoken about this, but I'm so sorry to make you go through it. Thank you for being so honest and talking about it.
1: Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, I I do love, I love talking about her um but yeah it is upsetting you know how many times I tell this story and I've told it probably a thousand times it's still you just run it back when you run it back over and particularly in so much detail you'd use right back there and it is hard but it's that's not to say you shouldn't talk about it because mm. you shouldn't have any areas in your life where you can't go And Mm. I mean that mentally as well Mm. as as everything else. So, Mm. you know, yes, it's hard, but I feel it's an important story to tell because I am not unique. There are many, many, many parents that have to go through similar things. Yes, I appreciate the whole cancer and all the stuff before it is different, but the actual situation of losing a child completely eclipses absolutely anything traumatic that's ever happened to me. It makes cancer feel like a piece of cake. Mm. It's by far... And will be the worst thing that has ever, ever happened to me. As long as my two sons are fine, nothing as bad as this will ever happen to me again. So I've been to the depths of hell. That's how I feel. So I have, if I had any fear before, I have none now of anything. Because nothing is worse than that. Um, And yes, unfortunately, uh, Ali died um, a few days after that and uh i felt oh just grief eclipsed mental health horrendous wanted to die i suppose because i just wanted to not because i didn't want to be here i did i wanted to be here with with her and the boys and everything to be great and wonderful i've just had this horrible well where the hell has she gone Mm. and is she on her own somewhere and is she wondering where i am and because I'm not religious or anything per se, I, n- mm. I'm not closed minded, I'm not. I'm open to anything but I had no belief about, I've never really had to think about it before, mm. like what happens when you die, where have you gone, um, are you alone, is there someone there? My dad had died before um, Ali had died and I thought well will he be there collecting her from somewhere, like where is she? And I just couldn't do anything about it, I couldn't hold her, I couldn't, it was awful. And then we found out the cancer had, was in my lungs and therefore was incurable or terminal. Some people like... Sc- oh, my God. Um, so, but honestly, I didn't really give a shit because mm. I was so wrapped up in the grief that I was in that nothing else really mattered. And um, it was it was horrible, but it was nothing nowhere near as horrible as, as losing her. Mm. So... Um, I had to go through the motions then of having treatment and I was having, when I first had that drug, again, I was thinking, well, this is why she died, for me to have this. What well, mm-hmm. a horrible, selfish person am I. That's how I felt. Mm-hmm. And then everything else around me, obviously all my friends and immediate family were all devastated for me, but everybody else on the periphery of that, all their lives were cracking on as normal and they were all having a lovely Christmas and And it just reminds you of, well, no matter how much in hell you are, life is going on around you and Mm. and I just couldn't believe that that really gutted me um I couldn't understand how everything was the world was still spinning when Mm. I was so much pain I just couldn't believe that why everybody wasn't Mm. Buckle like me it's a really bizarre thing to say but that is how I felt
0: No, so I totally it, it's absolutely nothing the same but we've had moments you know we've had life things where you the world you feel the world has stopped and you'll be going into a hospital and you're like why are they going shopping why are they doing that like this yeah. the whole world is. Sh- and for you there I mean I'm not even going to begin to pretend i can imagine what you were going through but the fact then you had christmas and all this going on
1: yeah
0: it it doesn't sound strange at all i can totally understand it
1: well it was it was um so we have these beautiful christmas lights in porter's head on the village in 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 the high street uh every year and she just died and we had to drive back from from the hospital after uh saying goodbye to her and we pulled up. We were pulling up into Port Said, and all the Christmas lights were on, and there were people carrying their waitrose shopping back from Waitrose across the zebra crossing, and all laughing about Christmas. And I felt sick. I just thought, how How are the lights still on? How are people still shopping? How are they able to do that when my daughter's just died? It, it was awful. It's mm. awful because mm. that ma- that pain is so humongous. You feel like the ripple effect is kind of blown across the world, and you mm. feel like everybody's going to be engulfed in this. Mm. You don't want anyone else to be sad, but you also can't understand how people are oblivious either. Mm. And it's so weird. It's a, mm. it's so weird and. Um, And I just came back, and I'd said to my, before I came back, I said, rang my mum, because we had all these presents for Ali and that, under the tree, and the house was full of pink balloons and all this. Mm -hmm. I would like, you're going to have to get it out of the house. I Mm can't, you just get rid of it and never tell me what you did with it. Just get rid of Mm -hmm. it, get rid of Mm -hmm. it. Um, And, uh, yeah, so then I went on to have treatment, and then uh, there was a turning point. (laughs) Yes, yes. So,
0: so yeah, so there you were. So you you got through the christmas season as such and then okay if that wasn't enough then you you have to go and face your treatment so you went into that and at this stage what was your prognosis as such Heidi
1: so um it wasn't good (laughs) um I was basically told obviously that I was stage four um and it was because it was inflammatory breast cancer that then put me down the, the sort of the when I told you originally that the prognosis was two to five years when you're stage four you're more looking at the lower side of that so it didn't take a mathematical genius to work out that um you know I'd i at that point I'd had it for a year and uh so I was general computer says this is your number generally we were looking at a year um But nobody ever said to me, Heidi, we think you'll be dead within 12 months or anything like that. But that was the reality of the statistics at that point, um, was that end of 2016, realistically, that's my expiry date. Obviously, it's 2021 now and I'm not a ghost. Um, But there was a lot (laughs) of stuff that happened in between that. Yes. Uh, So I started that treatment, it was grim. Um, but it did a certain amount it suddenly cleared quite a lot of the rash and it put me in a position where then I could have a a mastectomy um, because with inflammatory you have chemo before you have a mastectomy because you've got to shrink the the stuff before you have your the your boob whapped off basically to make the margins as small as possible so I did get to a point where they said we think we can operate on you which is pretty friggin major after I had that operation I then had another recurrence of more cancer spreading back across my skin which is not good which then knocks (sighs) more time off your prognosis and um and then that when they looked at me you know there was lung there was lung nodules and uh cancer in my skin my blood vessels this kind of shit Mm. so then they were like right we're gonna have to move you on for a third time to another line of treatment um which is called CADSILA, which was a bit like an immunotherapy therapy so i guess a little bit almost like the covid vaccine so it's using your own your own science and chemistry to to shoot back onto yourself so it works brilliantly for some and not so well for others in terms of cadzilla i'm not saying the covid vaccines the same but it's kind of the same kind of science i guess um that can work brilliantly for some and do nothing for others the CADSila. so obviously i was going into it thinking well i'm going to be fine i'm gonna i'm gonna be i'll be all right i'll be all right i'll be all right
0: so you still had it you still had your spirit that's the what i just I, i mean i just think that's amazing
1: well, there was a key turning point for that, actually, which I should have mentioned before, which is how I got back on my feet. Um, so obviously we found out that I would had this stage four diagnosis of incurable or I don't use the word terminal is bullshit. Um, I think ter- I believe that terminal illness is somebody that has completely ran out of every single option available to them and that they they're on last couple of weeks for me that's what a terminal illness is um everybody says everybody has a different opinion but that's that's mine um so i had incurable cancer um and yeah all right my prognosis wasn't brilliant at that point but um i it was a couple of weeks Probably three or three weeks or something after Alia died, when we'd been in this, and we'd had her funeral as well during that time because I wanted it to be over with as quickly as possible,
0: mm-hmm. really,
1: um, in the hope that that would speed up trying to feel some kind of cute hu- being like a human being at some point because I just couldn't get there. I was just like a a person wandering around drinking cider, being sick and not eating anything, um mm-hmm. and not knowing where, where was day, what was night, and it was awful. And obviously mm-hmm. I still had like a had you know, just turned three the day after Ali had died and um Tate was one and obviously they needed their mum mm-hmm. and I needed to bloody get a grip but I just couldn't. Um And so we're just in hell, really. And I remember sitting down and thinking I need to escape my brain somehow, but I don't know how to do it. The alcohol's not working. I don't know what I need to do. So I thought I need to distract myself or something. And I'd opened my laptop one evening and Keith, my husband, had gone out to the pub, I think, for his distraction. And um, I typed in, like, funny films for women or something (laughs) like that. And um, Magic Mike came up as the top suggestion. So I thought, (laughs) I've never seen it. I'll give it a go. And I put it on and I was just going through the motions, just sat there staring and then I remember there was this one scene where the main guy in it, he's a stripper, it's basically a program about strippers, male strippers. They're all very attractive. They do lots of gyrating of the hips and that kind of thing. And um, Channing Tatum, who's the main guy in it, comes sliding out onto the stage like to this really cool song and he's like gyrating. And I started giggling. And then I felt terribly guilty for for laughing when my daughter had just died and that I was a terrible mother because things should never be funny ever again. And then he starts flapping his wang around, I suppose, and then I start laughing even more and and I start giggling and I'm like, oh, God, you should feel really bad. But why should you? Because actually this is quite nice. There's a bit of life in you. Embrace it for the few split seconds that it lasts, you know, like it's escapism. Mm. and uh, and then I laughed a bit more, and then I laughed a bit more, and I started laughing again, and I just mm. realised that I'd still had a little bit of life in me, and that a lot of that was coming through with laughter, and I took that, and I frigging ran with it, because before that point, I would say... The best way to explain what had happened to me was I'd been stood on the edge of a cliff. I'd fallen face first downwards and I was flying towards the, the bottom. And I was going to obviously I was going to die. And it was going to be a disgusting, catastrophe, guts and stuff all over the place. And uh, the turning point and it literally was. I was falling off the cliff. Magic Mike's Wang comes on and I turn towards the cliff and I grab hold of something for the first time. It's the first piece of energy that I've had enough to spur me on to try and grab hold of my life and take a little bit of control rather than falling blindly into the abyss. So I grabbed hold of Magic Mike's Wang on the side of this cliff (laughs) and then I'm hanging there. And then I start to think to myself, right, i can laugh still i still have the ability to laugh that is pretty freaking major Mm. and then so it's like scrabbling and i'm scrabbling to get another hold on this cliff Mm. and the next thing is right just get up and make the kids their tea then you can go back to bed again but just do Mm. that one thing and then the next thing was right have a shower you know, changing, I've probably been in the same knickers for about four weeks at this point because I gave no shit. You didn't care. I didn't care. Yeah. And uh, there, there was that. And then the next rock or foothold is, you know, you have a shower and then it goes on. And the next thing you know, you're slowly climbing back up the edge of this cliff. Mm-hmm. And there are times, I know it's so cliche and people listening, going, oh God, I've heard this analogy a million times. But honestly, it really is like that. You're scrabbling, sometimes you'll slip a little bit. And there will be times with grief. Um, Somebody explained it to me that it's like uh, there's no graph. It's not a pattern. It's just a hand grenade everywhere. There are times where you'll feel rock bottom for weeks in the beginning. And you'll climb back up and you'll drop straight back down. But eventually the times that you're up will last longer and longer and longer and that's exactly how it was
0: mm.
1: and then I just started to take control of my life and then I was energized again and I Amazing. thought I'm not gonna take oh I'm gonna be dead by the end of 2016 fuck that because there there is always somebody that goes on to outlive and be like this massive God, I can't believe that. She was told, she, you know, I'm going to be that person who's going to live and live and live and live. Mm. And I'm going to live until I'm 100 and bloody 20 odd. Well, come on, you're the lady that fought the gangs. You, yes. you know, thought, if anyone can, can do, do this, that, it's you. It's going to be me. And I'm not going to just be the person that rolled over and died and gave up. And uh, yes, it's really hard to say because, you know, some when you get cancer you there will be people that are diagnosed with cancer and they can't do anything about it and it's mm. and it gets them no matter what and mm. and so it's not about oh you can positively think yourself yeah out of cancer because that's a load of crap mm. but if you have what you have in your ability to do you should absolutely take and, and run with it and I was going to be the person that became something from being told they would be nothing like I was at school mm. I guess when I was told you'll just end up um, As some ne'er-do-well who's not going to contribute to society. And I thought, no, I'm not. I'm going to be the person that got massively kicked while they're down and then came back fucking screaming. Mm. And that was going to be me. And that has been me, and that has worked for me all the way through that time, where to the point that... When I was on three week three monthly scans to keep a track of me, I'm on, then they went to every four months, then they went to every six. Now they've Mm. gone to once a year because Mm. they just don't know anymore. They look at me in oncology and they're like, you're just doing so bloody well. We just don't know what to say to you anymore because I'm so far out of the, out of the box now. Mm. Yes, I'll always have cancer. Yes, I'll always have chemotherapy. I had chemo last week. That will be me forever. But that's fine because it's so worth it to be here. And I just did not want my kids' lives to be swallowed up by all the crap that was happening to us. I wanted them, I want them, to have as happy of a life as they can have, whilst living with the reality of the fact that people do die and these shit things do happen. But it's important to me to take control of all the things that I can whilst letting go of all the things that I cannot control. It's amazing, Heidi. So
0: just just for anyone listening to to know what the situation is now. So that's five years ago. You thought you were looking at months. You're now an inspirational speaker. You talk. Uh, you know, I've interviewed before. You, I've said this before. I, I've been a journalist now for nearly twenty-five years, and everyone always says to me, or lots of people say to me, "Who's who's the best person you've ever interviewed?" And they probably think I'm going to say Magic Mike or, or somebody. <laughs> that, not, not I have. I mean, you McGregor, yes, but not Magic Mike. But um, I always say Heidi Locklin, and I'm I am hoping anyone listening to this will understand why, because it's just utterly incredible and when we meet you and, and say you can't see Heidi but she is so and again apologies for sounding like I've got the girl crush <laughs> but um, you're you, you know you're so much fun you're so much fun and you're so positive and it's just you can't we all say it my colleagues I know my husband came to interview you in very early on you know and our colleague Rupert Evelyn I know he's into and everyone's like you, you never meet somebody else like Heidi so again thank you so much for being so honest but yeah so and I love the fact you book a holiday don't you you're always booking your holidays you just you live life now very much as anyone should be living life
1: yeah absolutely because you know you've got to because you can either sit I could this is the way I look at it I can sit here and think oh god you know I am gonna die but then everybody's gonna die we all know that nobody lives forever and I could spend all this time that nobody actually knows. No one can actually tell me, right, you're going to die on the 21st of October 2025. No one can tell you that, right? No one's going to know what's going to happen. Um, I could spend all my time shitting myself right up from here until that point. Of, oh, I might die. or oh, I better not go on holiday just in case I might die. Or I better not buy some brand new shoes in case I don't get the wear out of them because I die after two months of spending 100 quid on them or not making those plans or in case this happens or in case that happens and then you've wasted then you've lived for 10 years all in that mind frame of oh I better not I better not and you've wasted your life anyway by not doing all the things that you should do so for me it's really important to make plans way out into the future like I've got holidays booked. I'm I'm going to Portugal in two weeks. Like I'm always booking things way in advance because what's the worst that can happen if I, if I die before then it's not my problem. I'm not getting the money back, is it? Like who can't you've got to live your life? And yes, it's really hard with cancer and all these things hanging over you. And the reminder, I guess, is when I go into oncology at Bristol and I have my chemo and I think, oh god, yeah, I've got bloody cancer, haven't I? I and just then I have remembered. It. Yeah I just remembered and then I I'm like I'm like sorry love but is there any chance you could just bung the plaster on really quickly because I've got to go back and take my kids beavers at 5 30 and that's how I live my life rather than okay well I'm gonna have chemo and then um what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna have six months of chemotherapy so for six months all I'm gonna do is be a cancer patient well At the end of that six months, you might find then that you need another course of another treatment that's going to take another three months. So you're just going to write your life off for that three months while you have that treatment and you're not going to do anything else. Before you know it, you could have wasted two years of your life just being a cancer patient. And there was no way that that was going to be me. I wasn't just going to be... Heidi Lachlan she has cancer no 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 there was going to be a lot of other things and when people meet me who you don't know me which is most people I'm not a celebrity or anything like that but um if you meet me for the first time you could spend weeks with me and not have a clue that I had anything like that going on you wouldn't have
0: a clue I would never believe by looking at you that you had chemotherapy last week no you just there's no way so i'm gonna well this goes on i'm gonna stick with our structure i hope you don't mind I, I, no. I, i'm a stick a stickler for detail no. Heidi, uh, no special treatment for you thank you very much um so we move on to the to be continued so this is how it's so your kind of next chapter such your this is how you're going to carry on and it must be interesting for you as well with the whole pandemic you know people have started to question things in the way that you've had to really act Actually, really because this is not could happen this has happened to you so you must I can imagine you get a bit frustrated at times when you see how people are stopping living because of because
1: of the pandemic well it's just I I I, I want to go up to them and say come on and give them a shake and say look you know you should never you should never do anything that makes you uncomfortable ever so if you wholeheartedly believe that you are more comfortable doing say for example sitting for covid sitting in your house not speaking to anyone not seeing anyone um you know if that's what you feel is the right thing to do then that is what you do don't let anyone else put pressure on you but if you're just allowing something to take control of you really it's not what you want to be doing you do actually want to be going for a socially distanced walk in the park even though you feel you maybe shouldn't you should be doing that because actually that's better for your mental health in the long run and if you're gonna it's hard because people sometimes will say to me oh my bloody kids doing my head in and oh and then you know the wrong I got the wrong chicken at it waitrose and it wasn't the type that I liked and oh I'm really sorry for saying this to you this is not even important is it I'm like, oh no no I'll stop you there if it's winding you up it's winding you up then it's mm. a problem for you you need to sort it out just because my top trumps of trauma is a lot higher scoring than yours (laughs) it doesn't mean that your issues are not as important as mine and a lot of people fall into that i was talking about this at a talk that i gave the other day about the shit scale which is we're terribly british in the sense that we go oh but it could be worse you could be such and such and such and such and they've got this and they're because i can i can yeah my life sounds like a car crash but i'm sure i can find somebody who in black and white has got a worse life than me undoubtedly and has had more trauma than me but that doesn't mean that their pain is 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 massively different your worst pain that you've ever had is your worst pain that you've ever had that's your shit scale and you shouldn't have to just be okay with being at the end of that scale because somebody else's scale is longer than yours does that make sense
0: yeah it does it absolutely does i and i i think sometimes i actually i don't know you might disagree i don't like this term oh it's first world problems because i think um you know if you've got a problem that is really bothering you you do have a problem that's bothering you and it becomes a bit no no no, if this is a real issue this is a real issue and you've um you know so and i think it's in fact you gave me very good advice because i remember saying to you when i met you before and i said you know obviously when you were talking to me back then it's like sometimes there there are no words you just there's nothing people can say and i can remember saying to you you know what should people say what do you want people to say and i can remember you saying do you know one of the best things is like when your friend is just like i'm just going to come and sit on your step and here's a bag of chips yeah and i'm just going to eat let's just eat chips and some it's it's having that you just sometimes you don't know what to say you don't have to you know
1: that was such great advice that you gave me there yeah and it's 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 absolutely spot on and it's exactly what my friend did for me Vic she knocked on my door and said that she said I have no advice but I have chips and we sat down and ate chips and there was no it wasn't that she had to counsel me or give me these because there are no like I said to you there are no magic words someone's not going to walk up to you one day and tell you something that's going to take every bit of pain away that you've ever felt it's it's there isn't anything but there's that presence of being supported and someone just sat there saying I don't know what to say but I'm here it's just as good and if not sometimes it's better yeah because People, we're terrible how we we default to cliches. Every time something bad happens to someone, we feel we've got to scrabble in our little bag of cliches to cough something out to make somebody feel better. Um, we all do it. Um, but actually, sometimes the best thing you can do, to do is absolutely say nothing. The worst thing you can do is to walk away from somebody, and that has happened as well. People have done that to me. They don't know what to say or do, so they do they do they run. <laughs> and that's mm. horrible. Mm. Being abandoned in, in the the time when you really need people. But that's also an, an, an exercise of life where you realise who are the people that are always gonna have you back and the ones that aren't. And actually, especially with COVID, because we've all been forced to make our worlds really, really, really small, you should come out with it this feeling that you've cleaned your house a little bit. Where yeah. There are relationships that I'm not going to be in a a massive rush to restart because I haven't missed some of that during... God, this sounds really mean,
0: doesn't it? No, it doesn't. I'm exactly the same. In fact, I had a conversation with my friend at the weekend about this.
1: Well, you just think, well, I haven't missed that person. And actually, a lot of what they brought to my life was probably more drama. And we don't really... Oh, it sounds terrible because you shouldn't always do something to get something. But if there's no reciprocity in a relationship mm. of any kind, you kind of think if you're the person that's giving, 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 giving all the time and you're not getting anything back, then actually you do the right thing by you by saying that is enough. Mm. So you just yeah. you walk yeah. away. So yeah. you clean your house a little bit and. You know, I'm very fortunate in pretty much 99.9% of the people around me are people that I want to hold on to because they're amazing. And I've made some cracking cancer friends. That's what I would call it. Um, <laughs> cracking cancer friends that like have, oh, people that have just been amazing to me. And and it's made some of the periphery friends. I think, God, I don't know why I ever wasted all my time. There's no, no point. Why are we doing it? Life's too short. Let's just gracefully not text each other anymore and just <laughs> keep to the people that are really important, the people that you want to spend your time with. And, and that that is, re- is really important for me. Mm. Um, Cancer has given me, it's taken a, a huge amount away from me, but it has given me lots of other things back in, in placement of that. And I definitely feel that I wouldn't say I'm a... I don't know I wouldn't say I was a better person necessarily but I would say that I'm a very different person to what I was and I kind of I like myself more now having been through all this shit and the other thing is um when you talk to when you talk to other people that have been through something really traumatic you kind of really listen to them that little bit more and I think people do in reverse, listen to me a, li- a little bit more now than what they did because I guess I'm coming from a place of some kind of knowledge of mm. something. Mm. Which sounds really odd. So it when yeah, when somebody's trying to lecture you, and literally the you know the worst thing that ever happened to them is they've stepped in a dog turd or something. You kind of think, well, <laughs> it's not as easy to take. It's it's easy for me to then if someone's trying to lecture me about something like work wise or whatever, i just let it blow over me because I think, well oh, I haven't got a you haven't really necessarily got a clue but then that in a sense is probably a wrong way of looking at it because actually you never really know what people are going through no. because like we've said if you met me you didn't know any of my backstory you'd have no idea what i was dealing with behind behind the scenes none at all and that all, all. so yeah i don't know just me i do think about things a lot more now than what i ever have before and um you know, I tolerate people probably a bit more than I did before. Give people the benefit of the doubt a little bit more. Um, but yeah, life is—it's really difficult. But in some ways, to experience intense happiness, you need to experience intense pain.
0: Mm.
1: And I think it as much as I'd rather reverse myself six years and none of this to have ever happened to me. The positives that have come out of it, I guess, is that i am a lot more appreciative of of the things that maybe other people might take for granted i guess Uh, but i would never wish this upon anybody ever i think it'd be quite nice if you get to go go for your entire life maybe a little oblivious it might probably you know but but also
0: heidi what you do is you're so generous with your honesty and i think that that can never be overlooked that not everyone would be as open and generous that you are in talking about things. And I'm sure anyone listening to this today, they whatever it is going in their life, will be able to take something from that. So thank you. So on the note of thank you um, acknowledgements, now I always ask, well, what are your acknowledgements? Who are the people you would like to thank?
1: Oh my God, there's many, many. People. Hang on, we're running out of time. <laughs> Heidi, she's going to be off the Oscar speech. She's well, off. obviously, um, you know, I the the main people that have got have got me through this are my friends and family without doubt and and in a rip roaring sense of humor that has been gifted to me from the police force um that is not to be overlooked the ability to laugh your way through anything shite that happens to you is massively important and my husband is a big uh contributor to that in how he's always managed to tell the right joke at the right time and uh but you know the kids i guess are are the most important thing without them i'm not sure i would have kept going um they've really grounded me and my mates, my mates are are something uh, next level. Amazing. Um, Yeah. They're like family to me and I've been my bestest friends and, uh, you know, I've been friends since I was 11. They're all my bridesmaids and they're like the most important thing in the world to me. And they've really helped me and it's been hard for them because they've had to live it all and watch it all. And I'm massively grateful And then all my followers who are brilliant, and if anyone ever trolls me, which does happen to me, ladies and gentlemen, really, and they're great, they're in there, and they're shooting them down straight away, and for that I'll always be grateful, because it's one thing that I don't have to deal with, and they're amazing, all the support that I get from my followers on Storm in a Tick Cup uh, are absolutely uh, brilliant and all my clients, everybody, I mean, everyone that I've met in a positive fashion have all had an impact on me in one way or the other, including yourself, you know, people that want to come out and tell my story and and realise how important it is for other people to hear it because I would love to get on the biggest platform in the world and be able to tell this story to people, but, you know, that's never going to happen, but as many people I can reach as possible it is brilliant. It's really important for me to be able to do
0: that. Mm -hmm. Um, I do just have to ask you this before our final question. Does your mum still hit you with the wooden spoon?
1: (laughs) She's about five foot two and I'm five foot eight and... uh no she wouldn't, she wouldn't dare and i would written a book about um, a lot of this stuff and there's a bit in there about her horrible punishments that she used to do and they're more <laughs> numerous than the wooden spoon and she was mortified <laughs> when she saw it was in there and if you like you've met her you'd I never let you say think for no. a second that she was like that she uh, gave me a biscuit on a Saturday morning I always yeah, remember she, it was lovely she's wonderful she's wonderful and um, no she's brilliant and she's got a great sense of humor we all have and I honestly attribute that to one of the big things of dealing with trauma is having the ability to laugh and not to feel bad about it it's so super important and something that you know, people don't really realize how important it is to to keep not necessarily to keep positive all the time because you can't I've tried you can't make every day count either because that's exhausting Some days you just need to lie under the duvet eat chocolate and watch motherland and you know then you live in the dream but um, yeah there's lots of people there's too many really but uh, the people that are important to me know who they are and uh yeah I'm grateful for everybody really
0: -hmm. Well, we're very grateful to you. The I'm gonna. Well, I will end on the advice for my next for the next chapter. But first of all, because you did always, I you've said this before. The advice regarding cancer, Mm -hmm. and you've said amazing thing about if there is something wrong, no matter what it is, you know your body, just go to the doctor.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I like I said before at the beginning, I'm not somebody that second doubts anybody, but your instinct shouldn't be overlooked if you really know something's not right you need to go and particularly in cancer world early diagnosis is the difference between life or death and it really is um you know it's super 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 important you're not wasting anybody's time you're not being over dramatic you need to make sure that you're happy with the diagnosis that you get and they're only human beings the doctors they are not going to get it right every time and there's nothing wrong with getting a second opinion you're the advocate for your own health you are the one who's going to save your own ass and this is the way you've got to look at things um just keep going until until you're satisfied really that you've had every every bit explored and and not to be fobbed off by somebody who isn't you when you just know something isn't right and i knew something wasn't right. And I kept going, you know, it was my third time but by the time I got actually taken seriously. So, yeah, you've got to look after yourself Mm. um, and to keep doing that is super, super important. One in um, two people will get cancer at some point in their life. One in two, that is insane. And you must remember that. But early diagnosis, if you catch cancer early, actually, it's... (sighs) it's very easy to deal with in most circumstances so get in there as soon as you notice something isn't right you said you know you know the difference between a stage
0: three and a stage four diagnosis
1: yeah it's major one one is that you will be able to put cancer behind you and one is that it will live with you forever and that is drastically different um you know, I've been stage four since almost from the beginning of all of this. Um, and that's difficult. That's somebody telling you, yes, yes, you will die from this. You will die from this. But how long until you die from that is is what the key is. And nobody can tell you the answer to that. I mean, I should have died at the end of 2016. And here I am now. Yes, you are. There you are
0: in full glory. So if someone's listening to this, so this is sort of all about uh, um, other next chapters. So like if someone's thinking about starting a new job or a business or just doing something different or even something different, Heidi, I haven't spoken to you, but you know, if someone's... unhappy in their life in their work in their marriage anything like that to have because you know you've you've talked about the 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 biggest of griefs you know you've you've, like you say you've been there you've been to that the very darkest of places what would you say to someone what is your advice to someone who is just keeps going over in their mind whatever it is what would be your, your advice
1: to them press the pause button is absolutely bloody crucial if you're in a position where you're looking around and you know you're not happy and you're just thinking yeah but i need to work so i've got to pay the bills there are millions of other jobs out there believe me i got medically retired from the police force and thought well, ask me buggered. I'm not. I'm literally not employable for anything else. I am have the best job ever now, which is getting to talk to people. I'm a writer. I do a bit of journalism. I work as an extra. I'm self-employed. I can do what I like. Um, there's so many things out there that you can do. And you will do them, but you need to press the pause button to keep doing the same thing day in, day out and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity, as they say. And you get you'll just hear that one time. If you're not happy, the bills will get paid. You will work it out. But press pause. Most jobs will give you the ability to take a career break in some shape or form or some unpaid leave or something. You should absolutely 100% do that. What is the worst thing that's going to happen? Okay, maybe you need to downsize your house. But if you're 10 times happier, what does it matter? You can only poo on one toilet, sleep in one bed and cook in one kitchen. And there's so much more important things. As you proved in in your early years. Right, right. You don't need a bathroom toilet. You can use a kitchen sink. Amongst your purpose <laughs> exactly hi there you go there you go now you said in that
0: interview you said you don't think you're unique I think you're unique and I'm sure everyone listening to this thinks you're unique Heidi Lockling thank you for being such an incredible and special guest on the next chapter
1: thank you so much for having me so there
0: you are. Now, if I told you it took me another 10 minutes to actually work out how to leave our conversation, you think I'd know by now. I'm sure you won't be surprised to know Heidi found it all very funny indeed. So, well... There are not many words that can follow that conversation, are there really? All I will say is when I first had the idea for this podcast, I knew I wanted to share Heidi's story with you. Every now and then, you meet someone who you know you'll never forget and who will always help you look at life in a different way. For me, Heidi will always be one of these people. Now, if you want to follow Heidi or listen to her podcast, Laughing in the Face of Death, all of her details are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening and I hope Heidi's words help you at least just a little. Speak soon.